Ditch the clowns on the left. And the jokers on the right. And join Michael Smirconish right here in the middle. This is the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. Last night, 60 Minutes was appointment viewing for me. Such was my level of curiosity about the so-called Facebook whistleblower. She now has a name. Frances Haugen is her name. Uh, Scott Pelley did the uh, interview. This, of course, following a lot of revelations that have come primarily from the Wall Street Journal. All the while I was watching, I was wondering, what does Stephen Levy think? He is the editor-at-large for Wired, and most notably for our purposes, the author of Facebook, The Inside Story, which really is the definitive account of Facebook. Stephen joins me now. Stephen, thanks so much for coming back. Thanks, Michael. Always great to be back. So what, what, if anything, jarred you as you watched last night or has been uh, raising your awareness or eyebrow as you've seen the, the drip drip of these stories come out from what she revealed? Right. I guess the first thing that jarred me was uh, who it was. I actually uh, know Frances. Uh, I literally went around the world to her with her on a Google trip of young leaders about uh, 13 years ago. So, uh, and, and it made sense of all people who were on that trip, I would have picked Francis, the one to eventually be a, a whistleblower, because even then, you know, at a, a young age, you could tell she had a really uh, heightened sense of ethics um, and, and an engineer's sense of, you know, something, if something's wrong in the world, you have to fix it. So uh, that to me was, was, was super interesting to see her again. And, you know, uh, in terms of what she revealed, the details are, you know, uh, stunning. And I guess it comes under the category that we've talked about a lot in different contexts over the past few years of shocking but not surprising. Um, uh, One of the revelations she had, which I found, you know, really interesting was uh, in one of the days, the Wall Street Journal, they talked about a program where, uh, Facebook did something that you think would be really welcome, which was to, uh, you know, like shift the algorithm of the newsfeed to heighten things uh, of, pe- you know, of posts of people that you're connected with. And you think, hey, that's a great thing to do, um, you know, to, to do that for, for people to make Facebook more like it was and not make it a sense of misinformation. That turned out to be, that turned out to be, that turned out to create Uh-oh. even more misinformation. Um, and and what Francis said uh, was that it really wasn't done for users. It was actually done in an attempt to juice up Facebook for younger users, which they you know were losing to TikTok and other places and and Snap. Um, so uh, that reminds me of something I wrote about it in my book, um, where Facebook. Uh, pulled something called the switcheroo, which was supposed to be for privacy, but actually was a way to deny uh, third-party developers of information. So Nick Clegg released a memo in Facebook, I guess at the end of last week, in anticipation of this big 60 Minutes interview. And 
your focus on the changing of the newsfeed algorithm reminded me of something that was in the memo, and I'll, I'll just read it. It says, this change was heavily driven by internal and external research that showed that meaningful engagement with friends and family on our platform was better for people's well-being, and we further refined and improved it over time, as we do with all ranking metrics. And then there was this, Stephen, quote, of course, everyone has a rogue uncle or an old school classmate who holds strong or extreme views we disagree with. That's life. And the change meant you are more likely to come across their posts too. explain that. Right. Well, uh, so, so uh, presumably uh, by you know, uh, limiting or not, or you know, reducing you know, the level of stuff you would get from strangers, Facebook, um, you know, was saying, hey, here's something we're doing to decrease misinformation. But it turns out, you know, not surprising since the way Facebook operates is by context that, you know, that guess what? People are, you know, you know, who spread misinformation, they're your cousins, they're your uncles. Um, and I think also, you know, the friends of your uncles and rogue cousins uh, also might be part of the people who spread misinformation and what the key is not really whether this person is connected with you but what kind of posts get traction on facebook and the kinds of posts which spread information uh people like tend to share more they're, they're sensational um and it really doesn't matter whether it comes from your cousin or robert f kennedy jr uh, if it's misinformation um, it gets more traction and Facebook promotes it. So that really is something that Nick Clegg probably knows. Um, I don't, don't think he's done much in the last week to improve his credibility. Well, Stephen, I was thinking about this because what you just said about Facebook, I think could be said about radio and television as well. It's not just social media, but as you and I discussed when the book first came out, your book, Facebook, The Inside Story, I don't think people recognize about Facebook, or at least they didn't used to, the way the algorithms accentuate the sensational or the misinformation or the the hyperbolic. Instead, it allowed people to be lulled into the view of, hey, I'm getting my information from the news feed. I'm not reliant on just uh, outlets on the far left or outlets on the far right. What they didn't realize is that Facebook already has their number in the same way as when we are consumers. We show an interest in the type of product and then we're bombarded with those sort of ads. That's right. I think, you know, uh, you know, it is a good point to say that, you know, look, we're hearing this stuff on radio um on television there's an entire you know network the most popular network on cable which you know in my view spreads misinformation about covid about other things about the election um but that doesn't take facebook off the hook it's a social media is a particular and a particularly powerful way of spreading information and misinformation um and you know it just just to say that Facebook isn't the only source for it doesn't take Facebook off the hook. Ultimately, and I think you know we see a whistleblower coming up to you know show us the the truth of this is that the people you know who work for Facebook have to face up to the damage that the company is doing. And even though they could say, well, look, the majority of what happens on Facebook, that's good stuff, you know, and, and people, you know, come back and they use it and, you know, they are in meaningful groups 
to share their experiences about cancer and neighborhood stuff and things like that. But that doesn't take them off the hook for the misinformation that makes a bad, divisive situation in this country worse and in the world, not to mention. She also said that the 2020 election protections that were in place were ended prematurely. They were ended before, for example, the events of January 6th. Right, right. Yeah, well, that, that, that was interesting. And Facebook is saying, well, they just got folded into something else. But, but we, I, I, I saw firsthand you know, the way Facebook ramped up you know, their, you know, uh, war room for the, the election in the midterm of 2018. And, you know, and, and these things, you know, uh, the concentration ebbs and flows. You know, the, the whole idea of a war room is something that's intense and short term. Uh, it takes people away from their jobs, uh, by definition, to work on a problem for a limited period of time. Um, and I think, you know, what Francis was telling us from the inside was that that this happened for the 2020 election, when in fact, after the 2020 election, there was a campaign that Facebook should have been even more concerned about, which is to uh, disrupt democracy in the wake of that election. Stephen, something else that made me think of you, because in your book, you talk about the reliance going forward on artificial intelligence, for lack of a better description, to to police the platform. And you also had this remarkable experience when they let you into a facility where men and women were sitting in cubicles and looking at screens and having to make split determinations as to whether something should be taken down from the site. In Nick Clegg's statement, he makes reference to the following, quote, Today we have more than 40,000 people across the company working on safety and security. 40,000 people is somewhere between, you know, the, uh, the, the spectrum uh, and veteran stadium to date the two of us or between the Wachovia Center and, uh, you know, Citizens Bank Park. That's a hell of a lot of people is what I'm trying to say. But there could never be enough people to keep tabs on everything. Could there? Well, if you look at the numbers of Facebook, you know, uh, I think someone pointed out recently that you know, can most you know policing in in this country like maybe one in five hundred people. Uh, you know, there's a policeman or woman for uh, every five hundred people. Um, there's a content moderator for you know every hundred thousand people on Facebook, uh, roughly. So even though that number is big and that forty thousand is sort of a, a catch-all, you know, there's I think about fifteen thousand people who are actually involved in the trenches of content moderation. Even so, that, that, that's quite a lot. But, you know, those people have to make a decision every 40 seconds. There's so much stuff on Facebook to, to look at. Um, I think what screams at Facebook, at Mark Zuckerberg in particular, is that you've got to change directions. That You know, and this is something, you know, that my book came out, you know, originally like over a year ago, um, and this hasn't changed at all. You know, everything I wrote about it is still relevant. That you've got to rethink stuff to make Facebook less toxic because the toxic stuff, uh, the numbers you're dealing with is a lot of people. If you're saying only one out of five teenage girls on Instagram feel worse about it and have bad body image, um, four out of five who don't doesn't cut it that, you know, that one fifth is millions and millions of teenage girls who feel bad about themselves. Who wants to be responsible for that? Nick Clegg in his statement, again, in anticipation of what we would learn from Francis Halgen, 
said this, the rise of polarization has been the subject of swaths of serious academic research in recent years. In truth, there isn't a great deal of consensus. And then the key part, I think, but what evidence there is simply does not support the idea that Facebook or social media more generally is the primary cause of polarization. By the way, I happen to agree that it might not be the primary, but I think it's a big driver. What I wanted to ask Stephen Levy, based on you writing the definitive book on Facebook, how worried are they or were they when you were embedded and interviewing all of those folks about their role in a polarized world? Yeah, well, uh, they are worried. I mean, and they're worried and, and they're trying, they, they try to use different tactics to mask that worry. And, you know, what Nick Clegg said, the quote you just re- re- read back to me, you know, that, that shows you saying, well, we're not the primary source. That doesn't really hold much water. If you're a secondary source, that's bad. And, you know, and it's not a minor secondary. Um, it is something that, throws gasoline on this fire. Um, and that's not a good position to be in. And as we see with this whistleblower, I don't think Francis is going to be the only person uh, to whistleblow like that. And there's, there's been people in the past who've gone out there, and some of the people were pretty prominent Facebook executives who you know, uh, revealed things about what happens inside the company. Um, and I think the current stance from Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, which is to stay out of the way and not take the lead in defending their own company, is one which is not a good choice. You know, and it, it it just makes people angrier and shows that their commitment is not total to getting rid of this stuff. Hey, Stephen, final question. What was her station in life when you were on that trip? Because she was not yet at the company. No, she was at Google. Um, you know, and she was thinking about her career in general. She actually was talking about, you know, and, and talking to us. I had a long talk with her. She was thinking of uh, taking a leave from Google to get an MBA, um, and which she wound up doing. And uh, Google, um, you know, stuck with her and she was able to come back. But then, you know, she continued her career and I think went to Pinterest afterwards and um, and then wound up at, at Facebook, uh, which uh, was a place with her ethics that she couldn't tolerate with what, what, what she saw. You know, a very, very bright young woman when I met her, uh, a person who, you know, a computer science major who took a delight in, and pride in you know, kind of like nerdy math kinds of things. You know, she would always be writing something and taking surveys. So she was a fun person. Stephen, I knew you'd have a unique perspective. You didn't let me down. I really appreciate it, and I thank you so much for coming back to the program. Thank you, uh, Michael. Always a pleasure. Stephen Levy from Wired, the definitive book on Facebook. I I should mention, he, he just mentioned Google. He also wrote in the Plex. He was embedded at Google. I, I, it's just important that you understand his credentials. He first wrote a, He first landed on my radar screen. I'm doing this all from memory, but he first uh, landed on my radar screen when he wrote a book about Apple called The Perfect Thing. And I remember TC when he shared with us how he'd been given a prototype by Steve Jobs um, of a um, an iPod, right? Exactly. And this got little a call tiny from, thing. And he knew. Yeah. yeah and he got a call from Jobs and wanted to know, uh, how do you like it? So he writes a book about Apple. Then he writes a book about Google called In the Plex. 
where right. the two top guys, the founders, gave him carte blanche, and then he comes back and he writes about, and he writes about Facebook, and he gets access to Mark Zuckerberg, he gets access to Sheryl Sandberg. I mean, he's really the guy with the the pipeline into that company, and I was well, so eager to hear what he had to say. Yeah, it's so funny because I had just said to you that you know whenever you hear Facebook, that's who you think of, and you said invite him. But when I invited him, I had no idea he knew who Francis Hogan was. Like that's right, that's crazy. Right, <laughs> I I was sitting here like bowled over as you were talking to him. That's amazing. I don't so, want to yeah, take for granted really, really interesting. that people listen to that interview, watch that interview last night. What what do we hear, have in couple of in terms of a couple of bites to just expand this discussion of what was revealed last night? Well, why don't I, yeah, we have like four sound bites that will really set it up. Um in so she sat down with Scott Pelly last night for 60 minutes, and this first one that we have is her talking about how she felt that the that Facebook was part of tearing society apart. To quote from another one of the documents you brought out, we have evidence from a variety of sources that hate speech, divisive political speech, and misinformation on Facebook and the family of apps are affecting societies around the world. When we live in an information environment that is full of angry, hateful, polarizing content, it erodes our civic trust, it erodes our faith in each other, it erodes our ability to want to care for each other. The version of Facebook that exists today is tearing our societies apart and causing ethnic violence around the world. Look, no, no different than what I see going on in a polarized media. It's just that in the case of Facebook, it's all so instantaneous. It, you used to have to whisper down the lane misinformation, and now you touch the send key. What else do we have? So this next one is when Francis talks about civic integrity. Francis Haugen told us she was recruited by Facebook in 2019. She says she agreed to take the job only if she could work against misinformation because she had lost a friend to online conspiracy theories. I never wanted anyone to feel the pain that I had felt. And I had seen how high the stakes were in terms of making sure there was high quality information on Facebook. At headquarters, she was assigned to Civic Integrity, which worked on risks to elections, including misinformation. But after this past election, there was a turning point. They told us, we're dissolving civic integrity. Like, they basically said, oh, good, we, we made it through the election. There wasn't riots. We can get rid of civic integrity now. Fast forward a couple of months, we got the insurrection. And when they got rid of civic integrity, it was the moment where I was like, I don't trust that they're willing to actually invest what needs to be invested to keep Facebook from being dangerous. Do we have any of the audio? One, one last cut, TC. Do we have any of her talking about the al- algorithms rewarding? I think, insuv- yeah. I think that's the key one. I think that's the key one, the absolute root of the problem. Here's that one. Haugen told us the root of Facebook's problem is in a change that it made in 2018 to its algorithms, the programming that decides what you see on your Facebook news feed. So, you know, you have your phone. You might see only 100 pieces of content if you sit and scroll off for, you know, five minutes. But Facebook has thousands of options it could show you. 
The algorithm picks from those options based on the kind of content you've engaged with the most in the past. And one of the consequences of how Facebook is picking out that content today is it is optimizing for content that gets engagement or reaction. But its own research is showing that content that is hateful, that is divisive, that is polarizing, it's easier to inspire people to anger than it is to other emotions. Misinformation, angry content yeah. is enticing to people it's and keep, keeps them on the platform. Yes. Facebook has realized that if they change the algorithm to be safer, people will spend less time on the site, they'll click on less ads, they'll make less money. Oh my God, it's everything I say about cable news. It's the exact same. And terrestrial talk radio. Anger works. Misinformation works. And that is what is driving the equation with regard to Facebook. I hope this is of, is this thing working? I hope this is of interest to everybody. Because I think this is so, so important in terms of understanding what is driving our discourse. You want to talk about the first hour of the program and why there's such intransigence among R's and D's and can't get anything done? It's, it's because of who sent them there. The people who are responding to the news feed from Facebook when they get a lot of anger and misinformation, which causes engagement. Now you know why today's survey question, and I, I have parroted the words from uh, Nick Clegg from Facebook. He says, well, I'm asking whether it's a, it's a yes or no. Is Facebook or social media more generally the primary cause of polarization? I definitely believe it's the media generally. Whether it's social media in particular, we can have that conversation. Do you think that any of this matters and makes a difference? Tomorrow, she'll be in front of a congressional committee. Tomorrow, Francis Halgen will be in front of a congressional committee telling this same story in more detail. Does anything then change? Hear more of Michael Smirconish on Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124. Live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Michael Smirconish for Independent Minds.